Welcome to Convergent Church. My name is Jameson. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm so, so excited to be here this morning. We're getting ready to open up uh, a new series, our Advent series that we've titled Broken Past, Bright Future. How many of you really like enjoy Christmas time? Like, raise your hand if you like Christmas. Christmas is my favorite holiday. Awesome. But I, I see about half, about half. Half of you are like, man, Christmas is awesome. The other half of you is like, eh, it's okay. I love, love, love Christmas time. I love being able to slow down and focus on what God has done for us. I love sort of leaning into that reality that Christmas season is a time for us to give lavishly and to express that, that it's a season that it's more important to give than to receive and how that reflects the great blessings that, that God has given us. I love thinking about God's grand plan of redemption and, and, and the history of all he's done, and I love just taking the time to dwell on those things. Christmas time is a great joy for me. But I find that while Christmas time is a great joy up here, it's not always a great joy in here. My mind knows to be joyful. It knows to give praise. It knows to be hopeful. It knows to bless and love and, and give to others. My, my mind abounds with hope for the world, hope for my life, hope for your life. But the feelings of my heart aren't always in line with the truth that my mind knows. What I know to be true in my mind, often runs contradictory to what I feel, especially in this time of year. I'm a deeply, deeply broken individual who's led a deeply broken life, and Christmas time has a very unique way of, of bringing that out. It's a season of sorrow that's also mingled with joy. See, when I was seven years old, um, my mom and I, we fell on some, some hard times. It was a pretty lean year in our household. And as Christmas approached, even at seven years old, I just knew that there were not going to be any presents under the tree. Looking back as an adult, I could see I had everything I needed. I had an, had an abundance of things already. All my needs were met. But as a child, setting up a Christmas tree, decorating with lights, putting the ornaments on, and then realizing that there's not going to be anything underneath that there's going to be barrenness under the tree was really hard at that age. As Christmas Eve approached, I went to bed, still with nothing under the tree, but believing, like a good child, that I had been a good boy this year and that Santa was going to come through. I just knew. I went to bed. My grandmother came over that night, and she read me Christmas stories um, and my mother ended up going out that evening to get some groceries for Christmas dinner the next day. And I fell asleep with nothing under the tree. But praise be to God, <laughs> I woke up the next morning with my hopes realized. There were many presents underneath the tree. They were all wrapped. They all, well, most of them had my name on them, and they were all addressed to Jameson from Santa Claus. I got a Stretch Armstrong. I got a bunch of Ninja Turtles toys. Yeah, yeah. You guys remember Stretch Armstrong? You remember cutting it open? That was the best part, right? When you got tired of it? Yeah, sorry. 
I was one of those kids. But I got, I got a basketball hoop that you could stick on the shower and you could play basketball while you were bathing. Not great for a seven-year-old, trust me. I got um, football cards, I got new pajamas, I got new clothes. It was, it was great. It was really one of the best Christmases of my life. It was something that into my adulthood I would look back and I would really treasure as being this, this really, really great Christmas because something came out of nothing. Blessing came from barrenness. What I believed was going to be a very broken Christmas ended up being a very bright Christmas. And I treasured that memory for a very long time. I sat down with my grandmother before she passed away, and I recounted that Christmas with her. And I told her how much I loved it and how much I enjoyed it and how much I treasured that memory. And that was when that great memory of that Christmas shattered for me. You see, my grandmother told me that, you know, Santa didn't bring you all those gifts. Now, no, this is not a story of a 25-year-old Jameson finding out that Santa does not exist. <laughs> That's not where we're going. You're like, what? He said, Santa didn't bring you those gifts, which I knew. He said, you know, when your mom said she was going out to get groceries, she actually went out and she stole those presents. And she wrapped them up and she put them under the tree because there wasn't money for presents. But she didn't want you to have a Christmas with no gifts. And so the memory of this really, the best Christmas that I felt I'd ever had had now become my worst memory of Christmas. Something that was supposed to be pure and good and lovely was now tainted. And it, and it really left me thinking, man, if the world is so dark and, and my past is so dark and it's so filled with this brokenness, where can I turn to find hope? Where's hope? If that wonderful thing that I thought was good and pure and lovely was not actually good and pure and lovely. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We're going back to the beginning. Now before we read Genesis chapter 3, I just kind of want to recount or recap some of the things that have happened in Genesis 1 and 2 to give us some context. I think the most important thing that we, we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God made two children. They were the first people. He named them Adam and Eve. And there's four things that we need to understand about them as we move through today. The first is that God made Adam and Eve good and holy. Adam and Eve were made without blemish. They were not broken people. Everything they were was what they needed to be. They didn't need any improvements. And most importantly, God said that they were holy. They were clean, like God is clean. They were without sin. And when God looked at them, he said they were very good. They were actually better than everything else he had created up until that point. They were the pinnacle of his creation. The second thing we need to understand is that God made Adam and Eve to reveal his glory. God made them. He placed them in the Garden of Eden. And he said, look, spread my image across the face of the earth. He said, my glory needs to go forth. Make this earth shine. He said, multiply, make more of you. Fill the earth with happy kids. He said, mold the earth, beautify it, just as I have molded you, and just as I have made you beautiful, do the same thing in the world. Show the world that I am God and that I am glorious. The third thing we need to understand is that God made them to enjoy his presence and to be satisfied in him. God told them, look, as you go forth, as you work, I'm going to go with you. I'll walk with you. 
I will guide you. And even as you enjoy the work of spreading my glory across the world and making me known, I will continually make myself known to you. You will have a life abounding with my presence, and you will be satisfied with me. The last thing we need to understand is that God made them to live within the bounds of his loving desires. God said, kids, I want you to listen to me. And when you listen to me, I will take care of you. He said, I know what's best for you. I don't want anything bad to ever happen to you. He said, everything in this garden, everything I've made, every fruit, every seed, everything is open to you, but I have one rule, just one. He said, there's a tree in the middle of the garden. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, don't eat from that one tree. If you do, on that day, you will die. And most of us know how the story goes. Satan, in the form of a serpent, enters into the garden. He's got a pretty big beef with God, still does, but God's victorious. And he deceives Eve. So if you have your Bibles, read Genesis 3, 1 through 15 with me. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and she ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig... <laughs> Love it. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You can't make that stuff up. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What should have been the brightest moment in human history, the dawn of humanity, God now had a people to lavish his love upon, became the darkest moment in human history. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. They were driven out of God's holy presence. And instead of spreading God's glory and God's holiness throughout the earth, everywhere they went from that point on, they spread sin and pain and darkness. 
and it all seemed truly, truly hopeless for Adam and Eve. Now, within this narrative, we see a few ways in which Adam and Eve attempt to find hope out of, in a seemingly hopeless situation. And I believe that as we look at the text, we will see that these are ways that we too try to find hope in hopeless situations. But these things are ultimately avenues to find false hope. I want to talk to you today about three avenues to find false hope in this world. The first is this. It's twisting the truth. Now, in this broken world, we can attempt to find hope by turning something that God has said is wrong and is dangerous and is hurtful into something that is right and desirable. The serpent deceives Eve, and if you follow the serpent's deception, it has these three parts to it. The first is this. The first is the serpent questions God's command. In verse 1, he turns to Eve and he says, did God really say not to do that? Did God really say you shouldn't eat the trees in the garden? How many times do we do this? When we're encountered with something that we know is hurtful or harmful or sinful or dangerous, and we say, you know, did God really say that I shouldn't do that? Or when God gives us a command and we decide that we don't want to do it, we go, you know, did God really say that I should love my neighbor even when they blow leaves into my yard? Did God say that I should love my neighbor when they steal my mail? You're like, no way. They took my Amazon package. Never again. Did God really say honor him with my time and my treasures and my talents? Did God really say forgive people even when they show hatred towards me? Children, did God really say honor your father and mother in everything because this is right in the Lord's eyes? Husbands, did God really say sacrifice for your, your wife, lay down your life for her as Christ laid down the church and love her? Wives, did God really say honor and submit to your husband in everything he says, not because he's worthy of being submitted to, but because God has told you to? Did God really say these things? For us, the answer is, Yes, and the list could go on and on and on. So the first thing we see is that the serpent questions God's commands. The second thing he does is he denies God's certainty. He goes to Eve in, in verse 4 and he says, No, Eve, you will not surely die, even though God had said you will. He convinces Eve that the consequences of disobeying God's directive won't actually lead where God says they will lead. He says it won't actually be as God says it will be. He says, you know, Eve, God's just trying to scare you. That's not really going to happen. God doesn't really work that way, Eve. You won't suffer for your disobedience. And so he denies God's Certainty. The last thing we see is that he distorts God's intentions. He shows something false in the intentions of God. You know, he says, Eve, here's the deal. God just wants to keep the good things from you. He just wants to keep the good things from you. It's not that God wants to keep you from harm. It's not that God wants to set your life up for flourishing. 
It's not that God is putting boundaries on your life so that you would be healthy and cared for. No, that's not what's actually happening, Eve. You see, Eve, God knows that if you eat, you'll be the one who's in charge. You'll know and you'll be wise like God is wise. You'll know better than God. And Eve, God doesn't want you to be in control. Because if you're in control, you can choose to enjoy the really good things. And this is a lie that so many of us believe. That somehow, in some way, we can find hope down past that God says are hopeless. Even though God would certainly says, son, daughter, do not do this. Here's the end result. We go, maybe. Maybe there's hope down there. For some of us, it's, it's drugs and alcohol. We think, man, if I just take another drink, or if I just pop another peel, or I just, I just smoke something, that's going to push away the darkness. But the reality is it's not going to push away anything. What it ultimately does is it clouds our minds, and it can ruin our bodies. And when we become addicted to these substances, I'm not talking about just enjoying a drink every once in a while. When we become addicted to these substances, we actually find ourselves in a darker place than when we started, don't we? Or some of us say, well, maybe I'll find hope in food. And I understand that. I'm a big boy. Maybe food will satisfy this inner ache that I have. Maybe, maybe food will do this for me, but it won't. We just worked through this in John chapter 6. You'll just get hungry again. No amount of cheeseburgers can satisfy the internal ache that I have inside. It can't fix my brokenness. And after I've gorged myself to the point where I'm ashamed of myself, what do I do? I just repeat the cycle because I believe that it's going to fix me. Or some of us go to the internet. Some of us go to pornography and we believe, man, that's what's going to make me feel loved. Someone else caring about me. That's what's going to do it for me. That'll deal with my brokenness, but it won't. For a moment, we might feel loved, we might feel desired, we might feel lusted after, but after that, we feel dirty and we feel ashamed. And what do we do? We repeat the cycle, but that's not going to fix it. Some of us think, what I'll do is, I'll just take my money and I'll accumulate possessions. I'll just surround myself with nice things. And if I surround myself with nice things, I'll feel better about myself. But that doesn't work either because what ends up happening is you're always looking for the next thing to accumulate. You look around at everything you have, all the blessings that God's given you, and you say, it's not enough. And what ends up happening is those possessions that you spent so much time clamoring for actually end up possessing you. You become owned by the things that you own. For some of you, it's not any of those things at all. Maybe it's an emotion. Maybe it's wrath. Maybe it's anger. You say, I take my brokenness out on everyone around me. I just let my frustration out. I, I vent it. And that's what's going to fix what I'm feeling, but it won't. As you open that valve and you let your anger out on everyone around you, you destroy the important relationships in your life. And you find yourself more lonely than before. And the list could go on and on and on. God tells us that's not good that's hurtful, that's destructive, and we say, we'll give it a shot. In one way or another, each of us twists the narrative away from what God says is good and true, and we attempt to author another story, a false 
narrative. But it always ends in tragedy. Twisting God's truth never fixes anything. It only gives us the illusion of hope. And you know, the interesting thing to me is that Adam and Eve knew the truth. And it's interesting to me that out of all the avenues they had to enjoy life, there was only one that would actually lead to hopelessness. They knew the truth, and yet they acted anyway. And we do this all the time. God says, son, daughter, whom I love, there's no hope in that direction. It only leads to more brokenness. It only leads to more pain. It only leads to more sadness. And what do we do? Let's give it a shot. We say, Father, I'm going to call your bluff. Let's see how it works out. Though we know full well because God's already laid out the consequences for us, how it ends. And so Adam and Eve exchanged the wisdom that they had, this knowledge of God for actual foolishness. They exchanged this great and holy reverent fear of the Lord for fear of missing out. And it brought a disastrous ending. So the first question I want to ask you is this. What truth are you twisting? What truth are you twisting? What has God said is clearly wrong, clearly dangerous, clearly not good, clearly not going to lead to anything positive? What has God called you to do that you're not willing to do in this season of life? What has God called you to let go of or forsake that you're not willing to give up? I guess the question that I'm really asking right now is what's broken in you in this season of life? And I know what some of you are thinking, especially those of you who are coming for the first time. You're like, man, I didn't know this was what's going on. <laughs> I didn't know he was going there. And I get that feeling. And you're probably thinking, man, you know, those things that I'm struggling with, those things that are going on in my life, those are for me. Those are not for anyone else to understand or to know about. But, but what's so interesting to me is that feeling that you're feeling right now, that feeling that says, nope, I'm going to cover it up. I'm never going to let anybody know. It's actually the same way that Adam and Eve respond to their own brokenness. Look at what they do in verse 7. Verse 7 says this, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The second thing we do to try to find hope in a hopeless life, to try to find hope in a hopeless world is to cover our sin and pain. It's to cover it up. In a fallen world, we can try to find hope by covering the brokenness of ourselves or, or the brokenness of others. See, what Adam and Eve hoped was that by covering their sin, God would not look down and see their disobedience. He wouldn't look down and see their uncleanliness. And that they would not need to be vulnerable with one another about their own uncleanliness. One of my favorite authors, John Piper, puts it this way. He says, he says, they tried to desperately bridge the gap between what they were and what they ought to be by covering what was and presenting themselves in a new way. I'm going to read that again. They tried to desperately bridge the gap between what they were and what they ought to be by covering what was, by presenting themselves in a new way. They said, we're supposed to be clean. We're supposed to be good. We're supposed to be holy, and we're not. So what we're going to do is we're going to cover up in hopes that we can come forward. 
And with the fall, two things happened. Two things happened that fundamentally changed our relationship with one another and our relationship with God. The first thing that happened is we could no longer be truly vulnerable with one another. We could no longer be truly vulnerable with one another. Scripture tells us that Adam and Eve dwelt together naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed before the fall. Totally open, no problems, no issues. But after the fall, the foundations of who they were, these good and holy and loving servants of God who desired to do God's will, changed. That nature collapsed. And they found that because that nature collapsed, they could no longer trust each other. They became self-seeking, self-led, selfish individuals. And they could no longer be naked and unashamed with one another. Why? Why could they not be naked and unashamed? It's pretty simple. Because here's the thing. If you're the most important person in your life, how can I trust you with my failures? If your heart is not to serve God and honor God and live according to the things that he says you should do, if you're God in your own eyes, if you've taken control into your own hands, if you think the universe revolves around you, you're number one, I can't trust you with the intimate and fragile things in my life. I can't trust you with the broken pieces of who I am. If I bring these things to you, because you're the most important, you might put me down, you might shame me, you might hurt me, and you might do all these things to exalt yourself. And I'm looking at my teens right now. You know it. You know what high school is like. You know what college is like. You know how cruel people can be when we bring our failures and the things we're struggling with to the surface. And so we say, no, I'm not going to let anybody see. Why would I ever let you see me? And from that moment on, human beings began to live guarded lives. We covered up. We said, you don't get to see what's going on here. The second thing that happened is that we could never be at peace with God again. Look at, look at Adam's response when God comes to him in the garden. Think about this. Every day before this, right, God had come into the garden, and Adam had come running into his father's presence, joyous that God was now here to be with him. But look at how he responds now in verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, like, think about this. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. For the first time, Adam experiences fear of his father, and not a good and holy and reverent fear, but a fear that's saying, look, I know that you said if I disobeyed, you were going to kill me, and I know that you've come to make good on that promise, and so I'm not coming near you, God. That wonderful peace and security that they had in God's presence vanished in an instant. And from that day forward, Adam and Eve and all their children, that's us, 
Whenever God tries to come near, what do we do? We say, no, I, I don't want to. Jesus put it this way. He says, he says, the light has come into the world, but people love darkness, and so they flee from the light, and we run from God's presence. And we now have an innate fear of being known by one another and being known by our Heavenly Father. Now, a few years ago, I wrote a song. Um, I was going through a very, very dark and difficult season in my life. I kind of stewed on this song for about a year. It, it took me about a year and a half to share it with my wife, Chelsea. And when I shared it with her, she just bawled. She just cried, not because it's a good song, but she said, I never knew that you felt like that inside. I think most of us feel pretty alone and isolated, even from those who are supposed to be the most close to us. And I just want to read the lyrics of this song that I wrote. I'm not going to sing it. I just want to read it. It goes like this. There's a part of me that no one gets to see. There's a part of me that's trying to break free. There is a part of me that's bursting at the seams, this part of me. There's a part of me that never feels enough. There's a part of me that's hard to cover up. There's a part of me that I would be ashamed to bring to light. And the way I answered that reality in the season was like this. I said, so I'll face the night alone. It's just easier this way. You won't see those parts of me because I've locked them all away. And I won't ever let you see what's going on inside of me because I've learned that I'll just get burned when I let you see the inner parts of me. This is human, fallen nature. Not only do we cover up our own sins, cover up our own failures, cover up our own brokenness, our own shortcomings, but we often cover up those things that have been perpetrated against us, those hurts that people have brought into our lives. We make excuses for the hurt that others have caused us. We say, it wasn't that bad. It was a long time ago. It's not a big deal. And we sort of explain it away because we've learned over time not to expose either what we've done or what's been done to us. Why? Because if I bring me to the table, you won't accept who I really am. If I bring not only what I've done, the broken person I am, but the things that have been done to me, you will think I'm dirty and I'm shameful and you will forsake me, you will cast me out. And so I want to ask you guys a question. What are you covering up? What are you covering up? What happened? What's happening now that you might not want others to know about? What's buried down deep where, where no one gets to see and no one can find out? Covering these things does not bring any hope. All it does is teach us that others can't be trusted. 
And the only way we will be accepted is if we put on a veneer, a false facade of who we really are. The only way you will accept me is if I become something that I'm really not. And listen, friends, God desires holiness. He desires obedience from us. He wants us to be whole and receive healing from these things. But the last thing that God wants anyone to do is to pretend to be something they're not. It's to pretend to be something that they're not. When I look out in this room, I see a room full of people I deeply, deeply love. But I also see a room full of people who have real, true brokenness. And God does not want us to cover it up. He doesn't want us to say everything's fine when it's not really fine. I get very tired of when I ask you how you are and you tell me you're living the dream. I know you're not living the dream. That's why when you ask me how I am, I often hesitate and I go, do I tell them how I'm really doing? Or do I say the acceptable churchy answer? Covering up is a hopeless attempt at hope. But there's one more thing that we see in the text. The last thing that we often try to do to find hope in a seemingly hopeless world is by shifting the blame. Shifting the blame. In verse 11, it says this. This is God speaking. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. You know, in this dark world, we can try to find hope by placing blame for the brokenness in our lives where it doesn't really belong. What does Adam do? He blames his wife. He says, Lord, she did it. She got up early in the morning. She put her makeup on. She sauntered over to the tree. She took the apple down. She got her apple cutter out, Lord. She sectioned it up in these pieces. She put it on a plate really nice for me, Lord. And then she popped it in my mouth. And I didn't want it, Lord. I didn't want it. She grabbed my jaw. She made me chew it, Lord. And then she massaged my, my neck and made me swallow it, Lord. It's ridiculous. And no, he didn't really say those things, but he might as well have. He takes the blame and he says, no, the fault is hers, not mine. Adam chooses not to take responsibility for the thing he's done. And we do this all the time. We make decisions that end up having disastrous consequences and we find all these ways to take the blame from, from being ours and taking responsibility for what we're doing in our lives and the things that are hurtful and we say, here's the reasons why it wasn't my fault. And not only does Adam blame Eve, but it's amazing. He actually blames God, too. He says, you know, God, you gave her to me. You gave her to me, Lord. Like, God, everything was fine before you came. Like, before she came, like, everything was great. Like, I was hanging out with the bears and the giraffes. They were all my homies. Like, at night, I was just chilling. I was here alone with my PS5, and... Then she came. Husbands don't react. Just, just look straight ahead, okay? But that's what he does. He says, Lord, it's your fault. You gave her to me. And Adam hopes to shift the blame. 
shift the brokenness off of himself onto Eve and onto God. And we, we see that Eve does the same thing. She shifts it onto the serpent. And a lot of us do this. We would do very well to look in the mirror and say, look, the consequences of these actions are mine. I made a mistake. I sinned. I walked down a path that would lead to disastrous consequences, and now I'm experiencing them, and that's on me. Many of us would do well to look in the mirror and say, you know, the problem's not out there. The problem's not my wife. The problem's not my kids. The problem's not my job. The problem's not my friends. The problem's not my parents for being terrible parents. The problem is me. (laughs) I continue in these things. I make bad decisions. I sin. And I need to be responsible for that. But then again, there's another way that we shift the blame. And this one truly breaks my heart. Because some of us shift the blame from others onto ourselves. I've heard your stories. Some of you have gone through some incredibly traumatic things in your life. Things that no human being should have to go through. And some of your responses was to shift the blame from the person who did that or the situation that happened that was outside of your control and to then bring it onto yourself to say, I'm at fault. Some of you have lost loved ones. And your thought is, you know, if I'd just been there, I could have stopped that from happening. Many of you mothers have miscarried. And you thought, if I was just healthier, if I just cared more, if I just took better care of myself, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Many of you have been deeply betrayed by people you loved, even by other Christians who you thought were in your corner. And your response was not, no, that was them. Your response was, man, if I'd only seen it coming. Some of you have been assaulted in ways that people should never, ever be assaulted. And your response to that was, you know, if only I hadn't trusted that person. If only I hadn't opened up my life. If only I hadn't let my guard down, that wouldn't have happened. It's it's really my fault. It's so interesting to me that when the responsibility for what's done is actually ours, we tend to shift the blame. But when someone does something that's truly terrible to us, we tend to internalize it and bring the blame onto ourselves. And Adam and Eve's children have been doing this ever since the beginning. And sadly, none of these avenues will ever lead to hope. We can't twist the truth and find hope. We can't cover up and find hope. We can't shift the blame and find hope. We need real hope. We need better solutions. We need real and lasting hope. And and my friends, here's the good news. God has provided that hope for you and I. He's provided one road, just one road, to true hope. I love this story in Genesis 3. And most people would say, that's like really dark, man. Why would, you, why would you talk about that? Because embedded in this truly dark situation, there's this wonderful kernel of hope in there. In the depths of our deepest failure, in the pit of our most broken moment, God promised to pave a way for us towards a brighter future. 
You know, in the garden, directly after the fall, God made a promise to the serpent. He made a promise to Satan. He said that he was going to send an offspring to overcome Satan, to overcome sin. That that offspring would suffer greatly, but he would ultimately have victory over sin, victory over Satan, and he would destroy him. And the word in our text this morning, that offspring, it's singular. It doesn't mean all of Adam and Eve's children. It means a specific person, a specific offspring. It's the person who's whose birth we come together to celebrate in this Christmas season. God promised his son who would take on the name Jesus. And it was Jesus who would be born into the world. He'd be born as the most innocent and vulnerable thing that we can imagine, a child. He came in meekness, and he came in humility, he came in vulnerability, and he came in innocence, and he grew to be a man. And he lived a perfectly holy life. Not one moment of brokenness flowed from him. Everywhere he went, he brought healing and hope. And God sent this son to make straight the way of truth for us. He sent this son to untwist the lies that you and I believe. He sent this son, Jesus, to uncover our sinfulness, to bring it out into the light so that he could actually cover it with something that could make us clean. So he could cover it with his blood that he shed on the cross for us. He sent Jesus to shift the blame off of me and off of you onto himself. And he took his holy life, and he gave it up to the Lord. And with all of our blame on his shoulders, he was nailed to a cross, and he died in our place so that you and I could have a brighter future, so that you and I could be forgiven, so that you and I could have peace with God, and not only peace with God, but that we could have peace with one another, that I could know you and you could know me. And so when we ask the question, where can we turn to find hope? Here's the answer. True hope can only be found in Jesus. There's one road. Nothing else can bring hope. And because Jesus lived this perfect life, here's what it means for you and me. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, this is what it means that Jesus came to bring hope. Because he lived a perfect life, it means you and I don't have to. I need you to hear that, church. Because Jesus lived a perfect life, it means you and I don't have to. We don't have to twist what God said is wrong and dangerous and evil and make it good and create a new standard. Because Jesus was perfectly good in our place, because he met God's standard, we can bring our sin, we can bring what's broken, we can bring the, the evil thoughts that we have and we can put them before the Lord and we can say, Lord, replace what's evil with what's good. And we can rejoice in truth even when we fail to live up to the truth. Even when I fall under God's standard, I don't have to remake the standard. I can say that's still good even though I've done wrong and I am in good standing because of Jesus. It means that because Jesus died for you, Christian, 
that your Father in heaven forgives you. You can bring your mess to the table. You have no reason to cover it up anymore. Hear me. You have no reason to cover it up. You can lay it down before God knowing that Jesus took all of that shame and all of that blame for you to the cross. And it was nailed there. And you can lay it down also before your brothers and sisters. Why? Because there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. You got to get that through your head. There's no condemnation. Christian, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, if you stand in the light of Christ, what you receive is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace every day. It doesn't mean you don't sin. It doesn't mean you don't fail. It doesn't mean you don't do wrong. It just means the way that God looks at you now is totally and radically different than what you could ever believe. And it also means that, look, if God doesn't hold your sin against you, how could I be so prideful to do so? If the one who's forgiven me of my debts, of my brokenness, of the things I've done to hurt people, how could I hold your sin against you when you hurt me? I can't. You don't have to hide anymore. Lastly, it means that because Jesus rose from the grave, after taking your sin to the cross and my sin to the cross, that we don't need to shift the blame anymore. Because Jesus took the blame on his shoulders, I don't need to shift it onto anyone else. When I sin, I can take responsibility for what I've done. When you sin, you can take responsibility for what you've done. And we can both go to Jesus and ask forgiveness and say, Lord, would you take this as well onto your shoulders? Because I know you've paid for this blame. 1 John 2 Verse 1 and 2 says this, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means to satisfy the wrath of. You know, when Adam was right to flee from God, he'd done something wrong. God was truly angry with him. But in Jesus, that anger that God has towards sin, that wrath, is fully satisfied. Fully satisfied. I'm going to say it one more time. Fully satisfied. Christian, God is not angry at you. He's not angry at you. I know that there's some of you here, you've been walking with Jesus. You've been walking with God since the day you could talk. And some of you have this pervasive feeling inside of you that no matter what you do, and no matter how good of a Christian you are, and no matter how good your scorecard is, God is perpetually disappointed and angry with you. That is not true. There is no condemnation. There is only grace. God is not angry. You stand in the light of Jesus. If that's you, and you feel like God is perpetually angry at you and disappointed in you, it's probably because at some point you were taught or conditioned to hide your failures. You were taught that here's the standard, and when you fall short, 
do not bring it to the light. And so you've got all this stuff covered up on the inside, years and years and years, decades of failure that you need to shed. You need to take it off. You need to let it go. It's time to shed those fig leaves and, and proverbially stand naked before the Lord and confess, Lord, I want to believe that you love me. I want to believe that you're not angry at me. And I want to believe that we truly have peace between one another. And don't let any of this other stuff cover you. What you need to let cover you every day, every moment, every second is the blood of Jesus and nothing else. Amen? Amen. Amen. So as we wrap up today, I have one more question for you. The question is this, what brokenness in your past do you need to come and lay at the feet of Jesus today? What's there? What do you need to bring and put before Jesus? What sin, what sadness, what, what failure, what experience do you need to bring and lay before Christ? What did you do that you need to be honest with yourself about? What was done to you that you need to forgive yourself for or forgive someone else for and realize that wasn't really your fault? I don't have any insight into what these things might be, but here's my, here's my confidence. My confidence is that the Holy Spirit knows. My confidence is that God was there, he saw, and he knows what needs to come to the table. So what I'd like to do as we get ready to transition in our service, I'd just like to take a little bit of time just a few moments to let the Holy Spirit work, to let him speak to your heart and to tell you what needs to be laid down today before Christ. Can we do that for a few moments? Amen. And just in silence and stillness, we'll go to the Lord and in a few minutes we'll pray. Lord, we come to you and we are just so blessed. So blessed, Lord. To know that we can bring the broken realities of our life before you. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus who died in our place who lived a perfect life and who rose from the grave to usher us into a bright future. We thank you for Jesus who transferred us from a kingdom of darkness into everlasting light. And we thank you, Jesus, that you shed light on the things in us that need to change, the things that need to come forth, the things that we try so desperately to hide, but you want us to show. And so, Lord, I pray today for every heart in the room. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, those of us who, who know you already, to stop hiding and stop covering up, but to bring those things to light and to lay them before you that we might find healing for them. And, Lord, for those who do not know you, God, that they would turn their life over to you. Lord, that they would see that the things that they hope in are hopeless. And that there is but one road to find hope, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would convict them and comfort them and usher them into your kingdom. 
Lord, we bless you for all you've done and for the bright future ahead in Jesus' name.